0: The two passages will be uh, are on the screen there. Acts chapter 17 verses 16 through 34. And is this volume okay for the think, two. Okay, good. Um, Acts chapter 17 verses 16 through 34 will be our first reading. And the second passage that I invite you to turn to would be Exodus chapter 20. Which is the main focus for our series right now on the law of God, the Ten Commandments, in the uh, the Christian life, and um, and if I could have you, if you have extra ribbons or a gum wrapper or something, I invite you to turn to Psalm 115. We'll look at that as we get into the uh, sermon and the teaching, but you may want to put a little marker there at Psalm 115. But our scripture reading will be Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, and Exodus chapter 20. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the epicurean and stoic philosophers also conversed with him and he said and some said what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So all the Athenians and uh, now all the Athenians and the uh, foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the uh, Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. And now Exodus chapter 20, and I'll read verses 1 through 6. am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we thank you that you do speak to us. That we do not have to uh, go across land and sea far, far away to try and seek you and find you. Indeed, you, you seek by your word. We can know you and hear you by what you have spoken and what has been written down for us, for our instruction. And so God, having heard your word, we pray now as we reflect on it, that we think through what your word teaches us here, that you would even now by your spirit be working to penetrate into our hearts, that you would um, by your spirit, give us wisdom and knowledge that you would enlighten our eyes to see the truth that you have before us in your word. So we'd ask that you would do that even now and guide uh, my lips, Lord, as, as I, um, Try to expound on what it is that you have written here. We pray that you would do this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the spirit and all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's look at our catechism questions today. We've already read the passage on question that answers question 54. So here's question, we'll do question 55, 56, and 57. Question 55 is what is required in the second commandment that we had just read? And we say, the second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. Question 56, what is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth The worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. And question 57. What are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? The reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety in us, and the zeal he hath to his own worship. So we are continuing, as I said, this series on the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And we saw several weeks ago uh, what we explored the question, what uh, is the duty that God requires of man? And the duty that God requires of mankind from the very beginning all the way till today, everywhere, is to uh, follow God's revealed will. And we looked at where does God reveal his will? He's revealed it in his moral law. We saw the difference Between his moral law and um, that is implanted and written on human hearts, that sinful persons suppress that truth. We saw the difference between that and positive laws that he gives. We also saw the difference between the moral law and ceremonial laws and civil and judicial laws. And we see that the moral law is summarily. Comprehended, that's kind of the fancy way. It's summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus himself, when asked which is the greatest of all the commandments, even summarizes these even further into two heads. And that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself, which reflect the two tables of the Ten Commandments. The first four is our relationship with God, and the next six is our relationship with others. And so it's those first four. We, we read the second commandment. We're in the middle of this first table of the law when we're trying to understand what God's uh, revealed will is for the duty for man to follow that is written on our hearts. <coughs> and it deals with our relationship with him. In, in, in essence, all four of the first commandments are dealing with worship. Last week we saw what the object of the worship is, in the first commandment, it is to be the Lord alone. You are to have no other gods besides me or before my face. And we saw that that doesn't mean you're allowed to have other lesser gods and that God is first. No, it's to be God alone. That's the object of worship. That's the first commandment. The second commandment is dealing with the manner of worship. And that is the dealing with idols. And so idolatry. So today we're going to look at the second commandment. We're going to look at the topic of idolatry and the proper uh, manner of worship that God requires. And so um, there's going to be kind of three parts to the message today. There's going to be kind of part one, part two, and part three. That's right. That's real surprised by that, right? Um, So the first part, I'm going to deal with the origins and effects of idolatry in particular. And then we're going to look at some principles of worship, and then we'll end with the cure for idolatry before we come before the Lord's table. So, so just to kind of give you a flow of the, the thinking here is <clears throat> there'll be three parts. So let's begin with the first part, and that is um, idolatry, the origins of idolatry or the origin of idolatry. Now, last week, we we touched on a little bit of what idolatry is, and we see that in our passage today in verse 4, the second commandment, where the Lord says here, for Moses, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. And he kind of gives the entire categories here. He says heaven or on earth or even under the earth, nothing. You're not to make any image. Notice there's really two parts to this. There's the not making of it and the not worshiping of it right you shall not make for yourself a carved image in verse 4 and then in verse 5 connected to this is you shall not bow down to them or serve them you're not to worship or serve them so that's what idolatry is but where does it come from and this is what i want to f- spend a few moments here looking uh, looking at we saw this a little bit last week if you were here but we looked at exodus chapter 22 the famous golden calf incident and it might be worth flipping few, a few pages to your right to see Exodus chapter 32. and the very beginning there, as Moses was up on the mountain, receiving these very uh, commands and instructions, and the people of Israel, who they, the Lord had just brought out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt, he'd had them cross through the Red Sea, he leads them over to this uh, uh, region in Mount Sinai, at the base of this mountain, and the people of Israel start to gather themselves around Aaron. They're a little frustrated. They don't know where their leader Moses has been. He's been up there for days or weeks. And so they say to Aaron, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses man we don't, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And so Aaron does a very tragic and unfortunate thing here. He says, okay, take off your gold rings. You know, give me the rings that are, you know, in your ears, your wives' rings, your sons' rings, give them all to me. And then he, notice what it says in verse 3 and 4. And all of the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf, and then said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, now what I want you to focus on, we looked at this passage last week, but I want to, what, what I want you to focus on is the emphasis on fashioning and then even the mentioning of the device that is used. Notice the word fashioned there. Uh, the Hebrew term there is, um, is the related to or very similar to It's a, related to the, to the verb for form or fashion and design. It's the, the same word that is used A related word is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, of the Lord forming the man out of the dust of the ground. So you're supposed to be a little bit bothered here that it's using the similar language of fashioning and forming and shaping with kind of like an artistic design and creativity. They're using the similar language that God used for making Adam. Aaron uses to fashion this gold so that Israel could bow before it and serve it. Notice the other two, the, the graving tool. The, um, basically, you're talking, this is the tools of a craftsman, a tools, an, an artist's implement. So Aaron ends up breaking both parts of the commandment. That we see in the second commandment. He made it. And then. He creates a worship ceremony for it. Look at verses 5 and 6. And when Aaron saw this. He built uh, an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day. And after burnt offerings. And brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. And rose up to play. Even as the Lord is giving these instructions to Israel through Moses, Aaron incites the people of Israel to idolatry, to make it, to make an image, and to institute worship around it. What I want you to notice about these is that all of this pictures of artistic innovation. And even when he's confronted about it later, in this chapter by Moses when Moses comes down and Moses confronts him verses 21 through 24 uh, Aaron begins by shifting blame those verse 22 and 23 he's like well you know the people you know what they're like they're set on evil for they said to me make us God so he kind of shifts blame a little bit here and then this outright lie um, and I you know I took the gold and I threw it in the fire and then out came this calf Wow you know <laughs> What a bald-faced lie for him to say. Now, what I think he's doing here, at the very least, is to distance himself from his artistic involvement and in innovation in this whole thing. And that's, that really is getting to the heart of what idolatry is. The idolatry is our inventing, creating, imagining our own artistic. Uh, we are fashioning a God. We saw this in Acts 17 in our passage, didn't we? As Paul is going around Athens, he's deeply troubled by what he sees. And he even confronts them on it. He's like, you know, the God who made the world and everything in it, he's Lord of heaven. He should not be served by human hands as if he needed anything. Notice the human hands. And do you remember, did you catch that part where uh, he mentions, according to the art and imagination of man? Verse 29. He says, being then God's offering, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This is getting to the essence of idolatry. This is the manner of worship, dealing with manner of worship. Being creatures, we are being, going back to the very beginning of, uh, of the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. God made humans, human beings, beginning at Adam, in his image and in his likeness to represent him, to rule over all of the other creatures that he has made. So we are made to worship, but if we do not worship the one true God, we will worship something else. And we will make that thing that we worship according to our own imagination and our own conception. In a very real sense, idolatry, before it manifests itself in a tangible physical thing it begins with entertaining wrong ideas about God here's a here's a quote from from John Calvin that I think is uh, gets really to the heart of the the issue here he says man's mind full as it is of pride and boldness de- dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. That is, according to his, its mind's, man's mind's capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. To these evils, a new wickedness joins itself, that man tries to express in his work the sort of God he has inwardly conceived. Therefore, the mind begets the idol. The hand gives it birth. Idolatry begins in the head long before it manifests itself in the hand. It begins in the head in the hearts of prideful, sinful persons from Adam. And we fashion uh, deities according to our, our own image and our own understanding. He goes on to say this famous quote. From this we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. The heart of man or the nature of man is a perpetual factory of idols. We're just pumping them out like in an assembly line. So where do idols come from? We're dealing with the origin here. Where do idols come from? Idols come from our own hearts and minds. We create them. They are our invention. They are our innovation. And why do we do that? Let's, let's explore a little bit why. Why do we do that kind of thing? Well, I think quite plainly, I mean, there's lots of reasons that you can give, but I think quite plainly so that we can have a God who will serve us. We want a deity that we can manipulate. Idolatry is to make God in our image, molding him to fit our expectations, shaping him to fit our desires, or crafting him to fit our our cravings, our bellies. So in a sense, in a very real sense, idolatry, even though it seems like it's outward directed, When we fashion those things according to our image and we worship and we serve them and we make them the primary goal of our life, then we end up worshiping ourselves rather than the creator. So it's self-worship or will worship. I'm going to serve God my way. and I'm going to serve the God that I conceive that I want to worship. That's substituting our desires for God. Again, Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks about this a great deal when he says that for although the, the nations that suppress the truth about God, although they should know God, they don't honor him as God or give thanks to him, they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. And he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then notice the exchange that's happening here exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Notice it resemble other things as well, birds and animals and creeping things. And if you go through and look, see various uh, pictures of idols in the past, they're kind of man-like or woman-like, but then have other animal features added onto them. But notice it's resembling mortal man, strangely resembles us. Therefore, God gave them over, to the impurity of their lusts, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then notice again the reversal or this exchange because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Right? So go, think back to Genesis. You think about the in the beginning God and God speaks the world into existence and um, he separates the waters above from the waters below, and then he separates the water from the dry ground, and then he fills all of it. He fills the heavenly uh, the heavenly spaces, and then he fills the um, the sea, and then he fills the land, and then the last thing he does is he's filling the land as he creates human beings, and he uses the most amount of words to describe it, and he creates man in his own image. He is the pinnacle of God's creation, and he's to rule over all of creation. So if you could think, visualize it as a as a kind of a organizational chart. You have God and then you have man and then you have everything else. And the essence of idolatry following the devices of Satan is to invert that. To, for man to find a creature thing and make that the model by which he will turn into a God. It's a tragic reversal of God's design. So that's that's the origin that's the origin of idolatry. Idolatry and let me say this before we move to the second point. Idolatry when you when you think of the term idolatry, you might think it well that doesn't seem so relevant today. That seems like something the ancients would do. You know, we don't see gold statues or uh, you know, silver or stone statues or do we? But I think that if you go beyond just even the physical images, when you understand what idolatry is, where it comes from, what its origin is, then we understand that idolatry is far more prevalent than we think today, both in the world and even in even the effects of it, even in believers' hearts. So that's the origin of idolatry. Here's the second, uh, second point under part one here. And that is the effects of idolatry. What does idolatry do to us? What effect does this have? You know, too long, didn't listen? It's not good. It's really not good. Matter of fact, here's two things that I want you to notice it defrauds and dishonors God. We saw that a little bit in um, what Paul wrote to the church at Rome. They did not honor him as God, they didn't give him the honor and the the respect and obedience that is due to him is robbing him of his glory and robbing him of his honor. That's the first thing it does. That's, that's what it's doing to God. That's what idolatry is doing to God, which is why he's jealous for this. He's not going to share his glory with another. There is no other. That's what it does to God. But what does it do to us? This is the second one. Let me tell you this. It, it degrades and dehumanizes us. It degrades and dehumanizes us. I invite you now to turn to that passage in Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory." I love how this psalm of praise here is, is seeking, right at the very first line, is seeking to undo the robbing of God's glory. Not to us, be glory, but glory be to your name for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And then it turns to kind of criticize the nations, and the, or what the nations say, verse 2. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. But now it turns from verse 4 to 8. It's now turning to what idolatry does to us. Listen to this. Verse 4. Their idols, and again he's speaking about the nations of verse 2. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Stop there for a second. So look at what it is saying about the idols. It is the work of human hands. And that What comes out in our hands actually comes in our hearts. And strangely, the idols resemble us in some way or some morphing of us with some other uh, animals or beasts and things like that. But it's very interesting and it's very telling that that when they make an idol, they don't just make like a pillar. No, they give it eyes. They take their engraving tool and they put eyes on it. They put mouths on it. They put ears on them. They put noses. They put hands. They put feet. They put all of these things on the idol. And in a really great sort of biblical mockery, they're saying you put put mouths on them, but they never speak. That little stone mouth doesn't speak. Or those eyes that you fashioned out of the gold statue, they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses don't smell, hands but don't feel, feet that don't walk. You catch the mockery here, the absurdity of it. We had the affirmation here in verse four that these come basically out of, from human hands, but then here it's just a mockery of the absurdity of fashioning something that you're, you're giving it artificial features. These are prosthetic. It's the nature and purpose and function of mouths to speak. And your idol doesn't do it. They have the features, but not the function. And really a really remarkable, uh, and I think this is kind of an interesting irony, in a way that I started to think through this. I was like, wow, the eternal God who is a spirit um, has all the functions of those things, but without the material things. I started to think through it. Like, does, does the Lord speak? You know, he's metaphorically described as as having a mouth, but the Lord speaks. But he doesn't have a mouth like we do. He, he The Lord sees. I started to kind of go through that. Yeah, the Lord hears. He hears the cries of his people and their bondage of slavery in Egypt. I was like, oh. and then I was like, well, I kind of stopped with the noses thing. Does he smell? And I was like, oh, well, maybe. Oh, and then I went, Oh, no, Leviticus, right? They were offering the burnt offerings, and it was a pleasing aroma that went up to the Lord. And I was like. Oh, wow, this is very interesting. So what's interesting is they're making idols that have all the features but no function, and the Lord does all of these functions. He sees, he hears, he speaks. But this is getting to the main point here. Verse 8. The idols degrading and dehumanizing us. Catch that. They have, you make these idols, they have all of these features, but they don't have any of the function. And then it says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What's he saying? The longer you engage in worship of idols, then you will resemble them. You will lose your faculties. You, too, will have mouths, but don't speak. The proper glory that is due to God. You will have eyes, but you will be spiritually blind. You'll have ears, but you will be totally deaf to hearing the word of the Lord. Do you catch catch this? Those who make them will become like them. Or this quote from G.K. Beale. What we revere... We resemble to our ruin. What we revere, we resemble to our ruin. The spiritual nature of the idolater takes on the spiritual nature of the idol worshipped. Or more simply put, you become like what you worship. That's what's so dangerous about idolatry. This is the dangerous effect of idolatry. Not only does it defraud and dishonor God, but it degrades and dehumanizes us. So in a way, worship is transformative. You will be transformed into the object of your worship. So think very, very carefully about the object and the manner of your worship. You resemble what you revere to your ruin, and you become like what you worship. This is why idolatry is so serious, not just in the object of our worship, but also in the manner of our worship. So that's what I want to get to now. So then well, what's the right type of worship? If we're not allowed to make idols or images, then what should our worship entail? And our catechism questions give us the two. They give us the required and then give us what is forbidden. Remember what is required is receiving, observing, and keeping pure all and entire, all the religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. So here's the thing. We do not need to be innovative or creative or think through things that would be pleasing to God. He tells us. He tells us the object of our worship and he tells us what what our worship should involve. And then he tells us what's forbidden. It forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. So the the ways to, to, in in the Protestant church today, there's two basic approaches to what should we allow or permit to take place in worship services. And so let me give you those two. Here's this kind of the debate that goes back and forth. Uh, There's the normative principle of worship and the regulative principle of worship. Now, the normative principle would say that whatever is not forbidden in God's word is permitted. There's a little bit of freedom. We could do whatever God does not forbid us to do. Whatever is not forbidden is permitted. We're not to do what's forbidden, but if something isn't expressly forbidden, then there's permission to do so. And it's on this basis where the church especially early in the Reformation, was continuing to allow some of the, the, the Catholic forms, the, the Roman Catholic forms of worship, they, some of those things were tolerated. I think as the church progressed and was reforming and was reforming according to the word and the sufficiency of the word, it moves toward the more regulative sense. But you still see this normative principle of worship in churches today, where there's art or drama or fireworks or... Dancing stormtroopers or pastors hooked to wire cables and floating out over the congregation. I kind of thought, I don't know, will these beams hold me sometimes? Should I try that? (laughs) I wouldn't get very high. That's the normative. Hey, if God doesn't forbid connecting the pastor to wire cables and suspending him to go out over the congregation and bring him back, then, then it should be okay. As long as we're reaching people, right? That's the normative principle. But the other is the regular principle of worship, which is whatever uh, whatever is not commanded is forbidden. You really should be should limit your worship to what God commands us to do. And this may sound limiting. It's actually quite freeing. How many of you have ever been to a worship service? Maybe you were with a family member. Maybe you went to like a a Catholic one or a Lutheran one or an Orthodox one. And there was a bunch of weird, I say weird things. Foreign things to you that were part and elements of the worship service. And how many of you thought, like, do I go up? Do I not go up? Do I sit? Do I, What am I supposed to do here? Boy, that, that incense smells really weird. You know, <laughs> um, in, a, in a way, this regulative principle is quite freeing because now in my conscience, I know I'm only bound to do in worship what God has told me to do. So let me give a couple of uh, things here of what we are commanded to do. That, from the regulative principle of worship, let me give you a couple here. Uh, we get this from uh, our confessional statement, the, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 22. It involves some of these. Uh, also, the Westminster Larger Catechism has similar list here. And let me just give you two. Prayer. Prayer is part of worship. And, and as a matter of fact, this uh, pr- praying to a God, this is part of the moral law, like it's written on our hearts. Human beings, we deep down know that there's a God that we that we could speak to. Number two would be the reading and preaching and hearing of God's word. I could go through and give you a lot of the biblical um, evidence for all of this, but just for sake of time, just to kind of sh- show you what these are. Prayer, the reading and preaching and hearing of God's word, singing, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. As a matter of fact, our, um, our confessional statement says, teaching one another by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's, there's an educational aspect to the songs that we sing. Now, I had said this uh, earlier this week, uh, this quote that I've heard before. uh, Most churches will sing their heresy before they believe them. So teaching one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That is commanded. Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians 3. Paul gives instructions on, on singing and how important that is. And then the administration of the sacraments or ordinances, and those would be baptism in the Lord's Supper. And then there's some other things, too, like special times of fasting or uh, oaths and vows to the Lord, which we're going to get to next week with the third commandment about oaths and vows. But those are what is what required for us in our worship. And we have the liberty to say God does requires nothing further than this. So what are some elements that would be condemned or forbidden in the right manner of worship? What, what, what are some things that would be forbidden? Well, let me give a list here. Um, devising, counseling, commanding, and using any wise, approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. That's kind of got that in our catechism question. Tolerating any false worship making any representation of God uh, or of any of the three persons and worshiping it or, or worshiping God in it or by it. Well, some say, well, I don't know. That's not a God. But this thing that I bring my focus and attention to, I'm kind of worshiping God through it. Even that. Superstitious devices corrupt worship inventing or taking uh, up ourselves these devices or corrupt forms of worship or even receiving it by tradition from other people all of those sorts of things would be forbidden because God has given us the instructions he's told us what uh, what we should do in our worship So now I come to the third part, and this is kind of the third part of the the thing, and some of the application or the uses here. Remember our uses that we have for God's law. The uses include, um, it reflects God's character and man's sinfulness, and so the first use would be evangelistic. So for those who don't know Jesus Christ, then the call for you is to repent and believe. Repent of your idolatry. I love how the Apostle Paul, when he's brought before the the Areopagus, which is kind of the big marketplace, and think of a TED Talk, you know, like a daily TED Talk there where they're exchanging ideas, engaging in the hearing and teaching of all things new. Give me the, new, the latest new idea. And so they invite Paul into this, and he's going to seize his opportunity, and he's going to go, well, I'm going to go right to Jesus. I'm going I'm to talk to them about their idolatry, and then I'm going to show them that, that they need to repent. I love it. Uh, it's often presented in uh, that Acts 17 is look at how Paul is so culturally savvy. You know, like look at how he's addressing the cultural context, and he, he's speaking, with, you know, quoting the philosophers and those kinds of things. Well, yeah, but what does he get to? He goes, Well, then, being God's offspring, you're not ought to, you're not, you can't think of God as gold and silver and stone. Now, hold on a second here. That whole city was filled with that. He goes, And by that, oh, yeah, I passed by and I saw this one and I saw this one and I saw this one, and I saw this and it grieved my heart. And I'm walking down the street and I'm like, Man, you, can, you, you, it's, you can't swing a dead cat around here without hitting an idol. It's an old saying my dad had. <laughs> But they're everywhere. And so he's like, and actually, you shouldn't do that. (laughs) Like, how much renovation would have to happen in the city of Athens? And then he gets to it. He goes, these. And so everything that you're doing and all that you're engaging in, times of ignorance. The city, the birthplace of Greek philosophy, ignorance. The, The times of ignorance. Time's up. God is overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I've seen people justify using Acts 17. You quote the philosophers, quote the people, and stuff like that, but they never could have called to repentance. But Paul models for us, you call them to repentance. To repent of your idolatry. And why? Because, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world according to a man he's appointed, and he's given assurance of it by raising that man from the dead. This is Jesus. So the first one would be if you're not a Christian, I'm gonna I guarantee you, you're engaged in idolatry. You may not have a statue, it may not be gold, it may not be stone, it might be something. It's something. And you're engaged in it. The way that I talk about my testimony and the way I that the Lord brought me to himself. The problem that I had, well, I knew I was a sinner, but what I, what I realized when I read the scripture, I was like, basically, I was engaged in idolatry, and my idol was me. It was me. My own pleasure, my own partying and self-focus and not thinking of other people. I was, I was, my, I was my own idol. So the call, then, turn from your idolatry and turn to Christ. Christ. That's the first use. The second use would be well, how does this apply to everyone? How does this apply in a society? Oh, boy, I wish I could give a little bit more time uh, to this. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul, as he's going through in, in Athens and he's walking through society, culture, his heart was, his spirit was provoked, it says, when he saw the idolatry of the Jews there? No, the pagans. He was just heartbroken. He looked at the culture's idols and go, this is wrong. I wish I could expand on this a little bit more, but we should do whatever we can to fight the mechanisms of the idols of our culture. With whatever mechanism that we have at our disposal, we need to address and fight the idols of our culture. And that we should we should oppose. False forms of worship wherever it may be found. And again, the goal would be for the first use, the evangelistic use. But then the third use is for believers. We may still have residual idols after becoming Christians. I don't know if I put this on the slide here. Yes. Here's here's a couple of passages from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, which is a neighboring city from Athens, also very influential, Greek philosophy, those kinds of things, filled with idolatry likewise. And so he says to the believers there at the church of Corinth, he's writing to the saints in Corinth, the church, and he says, do not be idolaters, as some of them were in Israel's past, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's right from Exodus 32. A little bit later, after he expands on this a little bit more, he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. i say this. The moment you became a Christian did not mean idolatry was no longer an issue that we needed to be concerned about. Or the apostle John, he says, little children. Likewise, he's writing to the believers. Likewise, little children. Keep yourselves from idols. So, what are your idols? What are the things that you have fashioned into your image that gain your focus and your attention, your devotion? Idolatry has no place in the church. He also wrote the Apostle Paul again to the Corinthians, a different letter. He says, what agreement does the temple of God, the church, have with idols? You're the temple of the living God. It has no place in the church of God because it has no place in the kingdom of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, etc., will enter the kingdom of God. So may we be on, our, on the lookout for any of the, idol, the, the tendency toward idolatry that we still have today. And in closing, let's, let me close with this, to remember that God made man in his image He made man to rule over all of his creatures. Man is the pinnacle over his creation. And in the fall, man obeyed the voice of Satan, which, but remember what it says? Who is the most crafty of all of the creatures the Lord God had made. He was listening to a creature to tell him to to invert the entire thing. So God made, so man made gods in his own image, the same, the famous quote: "God made man in His own image, and man's been returning the favor ever since." I would say this to recognize the cure that God actually provides. The image of the invisible God, Colossians chapter one, verses thirteen and fifteen. Speaking of God, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in speaking of the son, he says he is the image. The Greek word there is icon. Of the invisible God. Why does God forbid the making of anything that's in the created world? Because he was going to send his ultimate image bearer, his son, Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews chapter, chapter 1. The last days he has spoken to us again by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. So that the word we get, the character, like a character on a, you know, a font character. See the, the exact imprint, the character of the nature of God. So, man in the image of God is fallen and broken because of our sin and our idolatry and following after Adam. And Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God, he's the new Adam. So, all who worship Christ are remade into his image. In Christ, you are a new creation. So we er, we worship the one he has provided. Let me finish the Beal quote here. I only gave you part of it. What we revere, we resemble to our ruin or restoration. You become like what you worship. The spiritual nature of the idolater takes on the spiritual nature of the idol worship. Well, the spiritual nature of the Christ worshiper is to take on the spiritual nature of the Christ who is worshiped. You become like you worship, like what you worship. What we revere, we resemble to our ruin or restoration. May we revere Christ to our restoration. Restoration. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your call and warning here that you have given us in your word against idolatry. And even now, God, that by your Spirit you maybe um, that you would likewise provoke our hearts when we see the idolatry that's taking place in our culture, and that we pray that you would give us that biblical courage to call it out when we see it. But even more than looking at the idols of our culture, that you would help us to be on guard for the ways that we have other things that would crowd out the fixing of our eyes on our Savior, Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature, And so may we worship him in him alone and in the way that he is prescribed for our restoration. We'd ask that you would do that in and through us. By the power of the spirit, and it is in the name of Christ that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. amen.